Japan by River Cruise is made possible thanks to those who donate to the show at japanbyrivercruise.com and due to the generosity of our corporate sponsor sponsors. This week's show is brought to you by the Study Abroad Experience. One of the many casualties of the coronavirus pandemic has been the hopes and dreams of thousands of young Japanese people who plan to use their school study abroad programs to spend a term or even a year or two abroad in the United States of America. That's why it's our sincere hope that until you can actually travel abroad once again, we can help provide you with the next best thing. A fully immersive study abroad experience right here within the borders of Japan. Not only do we provide an apathetically taught, terrible ESOL curriculum as per American standards, but we've captured the most important extracurricular aspects of the study abroad experience. So if you can't leave the country but you still want to enjoy spending thousands of dollars to stay in an uninspiring family spare room that even Harry Potter would think is too small, a four times a day 5,600 calorie meal plan, an inept selfish sexual partner with a very problematic attraction to you, and a white family who will take you to Benihana once a month, let us be there for you. Plus, just as with traditional study abroad programs in America, you'll make lots of Japanese friends. Our guarantee. Even though you'll never actually go to another country to study, you'll gain so much weight that Japanese people will still say, Hello, Brian, and welcome back to Japan by River Cruise. I'm Bobby Judo. And I'm Oli Horn. And joining us this week is Noah Oskow, translator, writer, and manager of Unseen Japan, a site that aims to showcase real everyday Japan while also shining a light on Japanese social issues that are often overlooked abroad. For example, UJ broke the story that the Kobe beef served on Abekuma River's famous kosher river cruises was not actually kosher. Apparently, they'd gotten away with it for so long because everyone was more focused on confirming that it was actually from Kobe. Noah, props on that story, and thank you for joining us. Uh, happy to be here, and shouldn't the 2,000 Jews of Japan be able to eat some kosher brisket when you're on a river in northern Japan? I think this is a very important issue. As one of them, I totally agree. Uh, on this week's show, the announcement of a planned international music festival and the arrival of Olympic athletes once again highlights the unjust nature of Japan's selective border control, reminding us all that while regular people like us suffer under strict regulations, the rules just don't apply to rock stars and water polo players. Plus, Ali's got your weekly River Cruise recommendation. Ali? Yes, Bobby, this week's recommendation is a special river cruise that's been put on for international Olympic athletes that are arriving to Japan. This river cruise is going to serve things that are hard to get in Tokyo so the athletes aren't tempted to leave the Olympic village. The rumored menu includes Kumamoto Basashi, Hokkaido Snow Crab, and the Oxford AstraZeneca. Also, with summer fast approaching, famous Japanese popsicle maker Gari Gari-kun has announced that this year's seasonal flavors will consist of ice pops that taste like some of Japan's most famous rivers. Detractors have pointed out that this will likely mean producing flavors that taste awful, but company representatives have countered by pointing out that that's never stopped them before. More on that later, but first, Soka. Uh, Brian, we need to clear something up real quick. What's going on? Uh, we often refer to Brian in our joke tweets. Like the other day, I tweeted something about how in a certain headline, the word massaging was being stretched further than that time that Brian had to explain the Gatanda credit card charge to his wife. But um, And in that 
specific case, Brian acts as a kind of conceptual representation of our listenership. And when we do that, we are not talking about you, Brian, but since you're always here on the show as a personified stand-in for the conceptual Brian that is all of our listeners, I think it gets a little confusing. So I just wanted to make sure that we established that unless we specifically tag you, Brian, in the tweet, we're not talking about you, Brian, Brian, but rather all of you, Bryans. Cutting edge stuff, guys. Right. Anyway, really glad that's been cleared up. Noah. A lot of our listeners will know about Unseen Japan. It, it, it seems it, the growth seems to have been exponential over the last couple of years. And, and it seems partly because you produce great content mm. on on your blog. But it also seems that some of the, the kind of social issues of the day, you you're just the first to translate it into English. You're often the first point of contact for, for the English speaking Twitter to find out about. And you're seen as a bit of an authority for, for social issues, not only finding out about them, but also what we're supposed to think about them too. Uh, I, I'm going to take that as, as high praise. Um, that's, um, in a, to a certain extent, that's kind of a, a news to me, actually, because, I mean, I, I hadn't really conceived of, of the website as having such an impact. Mm. Now, of, of course, you know, I, I've only very recently taken the reins, so I really can't um, take credit for basically any of that. That's really all uh, our founder who's kind of managed to uh, take, you know, his idea for, for Unseen Japan and to make it as, as kind of well-known within a certain, you know, kind of an environment uh, as, as it is now. Um, but uh, if that's the case, I mean, that's, that's wonderful. <laughs> well, I, I think, you know, we're, we're just trying to translate, uh, translate things as they come out, you know, in, in a meaningful way, find... find opinions and uh, and uh, discussions and topics that are meaningful and make sure they're presented in English. And I'm, I'm glad that we can have any impact at all in that way. A lot of it is very, very funny. Like some of the just random uh, viral funny tweets that a Japanese person uh, posts that go viral in, uh, in the Japanese Twitter sphere. When you get to see them translated into English, often they're just as funny or, or funnier. And uh, I really appreciate seeing that. I noticed there's a big difference when you translate something that's just kind of a funny throwaway viral tweet and everybody loves it, uh, as opposed to when you translate a social justice voice out of Japan. Once you do that, it's all of a sudden it's, it's you know, the Westerners are forcing their liberal perspective onto, like, look at these white people in Japan you know, trying to raise all these political issues and, and you kind of have to reiterate over and over again, we are just translating Japanese voices. That's got to be so frustrating. Uh, I mean, historically speaking, and when I'm talking about history, it's the deep, deep history of like the two and a half years that this website has existed. But <laughs> um, yeah, that that has uh, been a source of frustration. I'm sure I'm sure that's a sort source of frustration for uh, anybody um, at the moment, who's involved in any sort of translation? Um, I mean, I know you guys have talked about this on the show before, but um, the the kind of assumptions that are made about uh, your intentions by by even taking a voice and, and translating it into English um, can be a little bit uh, difficult to deal with sometimes. But when it comes to this, there's this sort of dichotomy with uh, the way that our Twitter is currently presented, which is um, like you're saying, you know, we do some of these just translations of viral tweets, um, you know, kind of stuff that's just for fun. And then we do a lot of stuff that is much more serious. But even in the case, um, of, I mean, both in both cases, when it comes to kind of uh, quote tweeting, uh, translating something that's being said in Japan, whether or not it's um, it's something about an important issue or if it's just a, just a joke. I mean, we do we have received criticism even just for the idea that we are translating things beyond mm. just the idea that 
I don't know if you guys have maybe noticed this this argument that happened on Twitter, but um, it was said at, at one point, and this is fairly recent, and this this unfortunately is a you know during during an episode that had some impact on on the site itself. This idea that uh, that by tr- by quote tweet- tweeting by quote tweeting and and translating that we were speaking over Japanese voices. Mm-hmm. Um, was something that that was specifically um, brought up. Um... I, I do think that is unanswerable. And you know, mm-hmm. for what it's worth, I think the quality of your translations have always been really, really excellent. And I I don't think that you're guilty of you know in, injecting an agenda. However, mm-hmm. I do believe that the argument that simply by virtue of selecting what to translate and what to amplify, that definitely does create an agenda and an editorial voice because necessarily there'll be tweets which you're not going to bother translating and tweets which you do want to amplify well is it is it a different experience to tweet something that that is controversial in like right-wing circles than to tweet something that you think will play to your core audience and find out that it kind of creates factions within uh in your your general audience uh so um i i haven't personally really experienced um that happening myself uh at, at the point in which something like that really happened uh, with the Unseen Japan Twitter, I was not uh, in control of the Twitter at all um, or really involved with it beyond, you know, just being a spectator. Uh, but, of course, um, I think that you're, you're onto something, which is when, um, when you do something which upsets uh, the people who are going to kind of hate you anyway or, or who had major issues with uh, your mission statement to begin with, you're expecting to have to deal with that. You're expecting to to take on a, a certain level of um, umbrage and a certain level of attack from that, and you kind of steel yourself against that because, you know, you can you can say to yourself, well, you know, of course this is going to upset those people, and to a certain extent, you know, maybe it should, and mm-hmm. I'm 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 ready for that. But when uh when it does kind of you end up accidentally in one way or another, really upsetting people who you did not already consider to be your ideological opposites. Right. Uh, I think that can have a much greater emotional toll, you know, especially because it's quite possible that the same exact sort of language that, for example, like, like a far right troll might use against you or um, the exact same uh, talking points are then kind of repurposed um, mm. by people who you would imagine are ideologically closer to you. Uh, and then the same attacks are made, but from a point that you're not expecting. I mean, you're not, your shield isn't raised to that sector, and all of a sudden the attack mm. is coming from somewhere mm. else. It's a very similar attack, but it's not where you're expecting to get hit from. And um, I think that definitely happened uh, in our case, and uh, I don't think it was a it was very fun for the people involved. Unfortunately, I mean, like I'm saying, that wasn't me at the time. Yeah. Uh, but even watching from afar, it was a it was a bit difficult to see. Well, I think there are patterns that I I think I recognize in a lot of accounts that I follow, and I recognize these patterns because I see myself doing the same things in terms of the way tweeting and and getting attention for your tweets can be very, very addictive. Social media attention can be super addictive. And so in my case, you know, I'll look for a joke to make and I'll see somebody tweet something and I go, I can make a joke out of this because there's a mistake here or because, you know, they, they didn't understand something and I can point that out. And when I get attention for that, when I when I receive this positive reinforcement for that, then I go, okay, let me find another tweet. And what happens is the bar gets lower and lower where you go, well, this person, I see what they're saying, but I can pick at this. Or this person, you know, they didn't get this just right. And I yeah. I get into that cycle. And I've seen a lot of these social justice accounts, which Ali and I consider ourselves kind of a social justice oriented show, I think. But um, 
I've seen a lot of these accounts that that you know at first I see I, I start following them because they're retweeting or they're quote tweeting things that I absolutely agree with, and I go yeah you know they're really doing you know the good work, and then I'll see them retweeting things that that kind of get into to these like attacks like not friendly fire, but but I think I've seen like people go after you know, somebody for saying something anti-feminist and I see the person they're going after and I go, they're going after a feminist. Like, I, like I've seen mm. like a feminist comedian that I know is a really, really genuinely progressive, genuinely helpful, well-meaning feminist comedian, but a, a Twitter account took issue with it and went after it. And I think it's not so much always that, you know, you see something that needs to be called out, I think you kind of get addicted to this cycle of getting positive reinforcement for doing social justice online. And like Ali said, when that becomes your focus and your audience consists of people who are just there for that, it's really easy for that mob to turn. Yeah, um, what, what you, you're um, kind of talking about here, I mean, it's, it's completely and absolutely true. Um, I mean, Twitter famously, I mean, this is a place where um, people really eat their own that, mm -hmm. That's absolutely a phenomenon that we see happen, uh, happening. And um, the real, I mean, I don't know if uh, this, uh, maybe you guys have noticed this or not with Unseen Japan, but um, a big thing that, that we have tried to do is that uh, previously, I think the account was really uh, firmly associated with one person with a single voice. Um, our Twitter account really was a kind of, you know, it was personified. You know, there was a, a personalized aspect to it with this discussion of, of personal feelings with the, these, you know, back and forth conversations and like this kind of more direct, um, you know, like, you know, more there, there are call outs. There's like discussions of, of um, that really uh, are obviously coming from one person. And mm -hmm. what we have done uh, since since, uh, you know, the great conflagration has been to <laughs> de, um, <laughs> depersonify our Twitter account. You know, like our website is like the main mission for us. It's the website, and as much as as getting these these big popular angry tweets out does increase your popularity on Twitter, it doesn't do that much for really getting out of uh, this in depth sort of research and um, reportage that we're really trying to trying to do. Right. So I, I I think I think I think the switch has been a good thing. Hmm. Well, we look forward to seeing the direction that you guys go in. We already say that because we're scared that you might weaponize your audience against us. No, we, we like uh, river cruises at Unseen Japan. We're, we're firmly for okay. them. So with that then, shall we take a look at the news? Bobby Gino, what's in the news this week? The very famous uh, music festival, Summer Sonic, here in Japan, uh, has announced via Twitter press release that they aim to be 2021's first music festival with a lineup that will include artists from overseas. And Twitter is very upset about this. Um, let's pretend that we don't know any of the background at all. And I just want to ask Noah, if the state of emergency is ostensibly over in Japan and the vaccination process is ostensibly underway in Japan, then what's the problem with letting artists in for a music festival? Uh, so the, the problem is, is that um, right now there are a lot of people around the world uh, who have good reasons to come to the country uh, for whom doing so is, is not only impossible, but for uh, the time schedule of being able to is not in any way being communicated by the Japanese government. 
Uh, and when it comes to specifically right now, when it comes to the idea of Summer Sonic bringing in uh, these foreign talents, uh, the their ability to do so hasn't even really been established at all. If you look at the press release, um, it, it's essentially saying, "Dude, trust me. Like we're gonna make this happen." <laughs> but there's there's absolutely there's absolutely um, no explanation as to how that is going to work out. They're saying September uh, mm-hmm. that this is going to happen in September. Um, I guess that maybe maybe they have some insider knowledge. Maybe they know somebody in the government who says this is gonna this is gonna work, uh, and that these sort these sorts of visas are really gonna be able to be issued at, on time for this. But I mean, they have not announced um, what artists they're talking about. There is no list for these artists, and there is no there's no specifics on how they're gonna do it. Uh, because I think um, imagining that in a few months uh, things are going to open up and imagining in a few months that, that they're going to start letting in more, uh, you know, they're going to start issuing more visas to, to foreigners in general. I think this is something that we've been saying for six or seven months now that, oh, it's only a few months away. Uh, so we'll, we'll see what happens. With this. Oh, I think the first thing to say is it's obviously not happening. So whatever reason they had for putting this tweet out, and it might have just been for PR, that's worked. Right, so tickets are available for Summer, Summer Sonic. We're talking to about it. To be fair, Ali has been saying it's not happening about the Olympics for the last year. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it's not happening. Uh, it's not happening in any meaningful way, is it? Uh, so maybe you know, maybe this is just PR, and maybe we've fallen into their trap. But it obviously isn't happening. Just like like Noah said, from a practical point of view, it's really hard to get foreign entertainer visas. And there are for Japan at least, and there are loads of rules about how many months it takes before the trip, before their trip. And I'm sure that the lead time of like July to September is just about enough if they start work now. And you know, you've got to go through like these special offices uh, where it's not the immigration that does it; it's like a local production company. And I have friends that work in this area, and I know that for many of these international production companies, they've just closed those yeah, offices. But, but, so like, there's no one. Yeah, but Ali. I hate to make this joke again, but it's only hard if you're the person who has to do it for like a major artist or for the people who are running this corporation uh, that put, puts on Summer Sonic. They're just going to go. It's going to get done. And then somebody way far down the ladder is going to have to do it. People will take care of that. Yeah, I'm obviously not imagining like Ariana Grande standing in a six hour queue in Shinagawa, uh, having to then go back to the convenience store to get some stamps or something. Yeah, obviously I'm aware that it's not like, it's not gonna inconvenience the artists. But what I'm saying is just, I don't actually think practically there's a way of expediting this process and the process would have to start in the next few weeks. So obviously it's not happening for like those practical reasons. Obviously it's also not happening because anyone that does uh, take this job uh, will not be able to open their Twitter for three weeks as loads of people angrily tweet what the hell do you think you're doing coming to this country uh, when I'm I'm not allowed to. So for another for another reason, it's bad PR. By the way, did you see that, talking about Ariana Grande, that's why she's on my mind. Did you see that she did a, uh, a musical with James Corden, which was a parody of Good Morning Baltimore, and they changed the lyrics to no, no lockdowns anymore. And they released that like two weeks ago while we're still in the middle of a pandemic where less than 5% of the entire population has been vaccinated. I mean, for, you know, people, James Corden can be criticized for lots of different reasons, not necessarily his singing, but uh, <laughs> that certainly doing it is tone deaf. Anyway, we are in the middle of a pandemic. James Corden's forgotten this. Ariana Grande's forgotten this. These guys have forgotten this, but the story, which I am going to come back to now thread. is- <laughs> <laughs> I have not, I actually have not. 
the, sto- the story is funny. I'll tell you why I haven't forgotten it. Because this was a story that we first brought up on this show months ago. I dare say, I dare say over a year ago with Magdalena Osumi, where basically the Japanese government have basically ignored the category of people who do have very, very good reason to be in the country. And we've gone over the debate of like, oh, no one has a right to live in Japan. No one has a right to study abroad, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, we get it. But there is a certain category of people who have built lives in Japan. And due to the peculiarity of their personal circumstances and just the way in which the roulette wheel of life landed, they've stopped having their life. Or they've put their plans on hold to move to Japan or they temporarily left Japan or whatever their circumstances were. And the issue is it's tone deaf that the Japanese government is saying, yeah, come on, if you can throw a javelin, in you come. If you're good at guitar, in you come. But there are people who do, for want of a better word, deserve to be in Japan who can't. Yeah, it's a crime that the Japanese government is ignoring those people. So let's not make the same mistake and let's let one of them talk. <laughs> Noah. <laughs> Noah, do you remember what What's, we're talking uh, about? Ali, Ali. <laughs> Noah, uh, tell us what your situation is. <laughs> I'm proud to be one of the sort of underheard voices that Unseen Japan likes to lift up in this case. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I, I happen to be one of these people. Um, and uh, th- this came about, you know, I, I'm, I'm uh, currently in a long-distance relationship um, with my fiancé. And the only reason that it's a long-distance relationship right now is because of the pandemic and specifically because of uh, the regulations currently in place, uh, essentially banning all, all entry by foreigners into Japan and... and really putting a, a, a very hard mor- moratorium uh, on the issuing of new visas. Uh, now, my partner, uh, she's Japanese. Um, we've been together for many years now. In fact, we were supposed to be married um, over a year ago mm. now. Uh, and what happened uh, to that is is basically the pandemic made that completely impossible. Now, we were living actually in Europe when the pandemic hit. I'm, I was doing my master's in, in Germany and then in Austria. And it was my second year. We were both living in Europe uh, and the pandemic really started a, a few months into my second year of, of my master's. And so we spent the first uh, six plus months of the pandemic in Austria, uh, getting through, uh, you know, lockdowns and the situation there, which thankfully was never uh, even close to as bad as it was in the United States, at least at the time. Um, despite the fact of that in Italy, so close, it was, it was so terrible, uh, even just across the border in Italy. Anyway, the main point, however, is that because I was doing my master's and my master's ended and I and I completed my master's, that meant that, you know, the period of, of us being able to live in Europe was coming to an end uh, because we no longer had a reason to be there. And she was also um, doing a, a working holiday, you know, in Austria, and both of our visas were coming to an end. And this this limbo was, was fast approaching. Um, and we what we wanted to do was to return to Japan um, and to uh, start working there start making our life there, uh, and I'm, I'm also hoping to do a PhD mm-hmm. in Japan. And what, what occurred is that we were starting to plan this. I was, I was reaching out and, and hoping to get a job. I, I had a good contact. Um, we were starting to move forward with it. But then the reality that um, the new work visas weren't being issued set in, and the reality that it wasn't going to be possible for me to get to Japan set in, and the reality that it was going to be difficult for him to, her to come to America, especially for anything more than just the three months of mm-hmm. a tourist visa, you know, that also said it. And unlike unlike other countries such as Australia, where if you're in a long-term relationship with someone, that can be the basis on which you could get a visa that isn't just a, a, a tourist or a temporary visitor visa. Japan has no such exceptions. And I've heard even reports of people who are uh, married, um, but married abroad couldn't come in together. 
So, you, you know, you, you are in a, in a bit of a pickle, aren't you? And there doesn't seem to be any timeline in place. Uh, sadly, there is absolutely no, no timeline. As I was saying earlier, you know, we kept on feeling like, you know, like, okay, in the three months, this is going to change. In three months, this is going to change. And um, we've, I mean, honestly, I have been in the United States for over half, of, half a year now. And it's been entirely uh, on, the, on this basis of, of thinking things are going to change and, and then they don't. And Ollie, as you, as you just mentioned, um, there are many countries where... Uh, even if you are not actually married, uh, in Europe, for example, they, they were starting to, you know, change the regulations to let in couples. But of course, saying, oh, we're a couple, that isn't really something that you can have, like, in mm. writing and, and stamped by some agency. And in Japan, I mean, the idea that, you know, even, even the idea that you're living with somebody that you're not married to is, is scandalous and, and very, very difficult for bureaucrats in Japan to imagine in the first place. So it's going to be even worse to try to try to convince Japan that I mean, there's so many there's so many international couples who are separated uh, by these regulations right now, um, and uh, the likelihood that Japan is going to take that into account is a big issue. And as I said, I mean, we were we were going to be married mm. actually. Uh, um, and the idea originally was to get married in Japan, uh, which is probably the easiest place for us to get married, uh, and yet that was impossible. So we aren't even spouses because of the mm. pandemic, uh, and they aren't even issuing spousal visas anyway. Right. So it's, it's, it's just as you're saying, unfortunately, it's just a catch-22. It's not just spousal visas, it's uh, new student visas, it's new employee visas, and it's affecting so many people. And you mentioned this idea that I think a lot of these people have that you know it's going to be better in three months, things will get better down the line. I saw a tweet today um, from somebody who was talking about how they were forced to defer admission to a Japanese study abroad program uh, for their summer program last year, and then... You know, they put it off to spring of this year, and then they put it off again to summer of this year, and now they're being asked to put it off again. And what are they supposed to do with their school career in the meantime? And so I'm kind of wondering, at what point does your desire to be in Japan end up derailing your life? I mean, as most people who, who live here, who've had experience here know, usually you have to live here for two or three years before it derails your life. These people are having the same thing happen, and they don't even get to come over. <laughs> so, but but it's a serious question. Like, at what point do you reprioritize? What point do you go? This isn't worth it. Not about your wife. About uh, I mean, <laughs> about coming over. Yeah. Um. Thankfully, I I have not gotten to that point at all. Where I'm thinking about, oh, is this worth it or not? But um, I mean that that's very that's very true. And I mean that that's also true. For example, for Jet, you know, like um, there are all sorts of people who are supposed to be on their departures mm. for Jet to be ALTs to teach in Japan. And of course, that's a thing that the Japanese government. You know, the Japanese government is hiring people for JET, and yet they also had these deferments. And that's also this huge issue where, you know, because in order to get into JET, it's over a year-long process just, you know, applying and interviewing and all this stuff. And then that was deferred and then deferred again. Meanwhile, you know, within the, within Japan, you know, like um, schools, uh, there all sorts of ALTs are, are going back to their home countries. They're, the ALT positions are completely un, unfilled. Uh, and despite uh, what many Japanese teachers believe, uh, and probably many ALTs believe, it turns out that ALTs actually do have a purpose, mm. <laughs> um, and and uh, and that this is actually kind of an issue for a lot of a lot of school systems right now. And this, as I'm, as I'm saying, JET is a governmental thing, and yet they were only, until very recently were not able to get in the new departure jets at all, um, and and people are just stuck waiting for a, a job that they've put so much time into. Uh, this is this is a big issue. Um, I mean, I, I think that a lot of people, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, foreigners or people who come from you know uh, foreign countries and maybe I mean at some point even intended to to take on Japanese citizenship. Who knows? Um, I think for a lot of people who call Japan home or had thought they were going to call Japan home, 
this is a bit of a red yeah. flag in terms of how much the, the Japanese government cares about anyone who does not already have a Japanese passport. That's a really good point. I think you do see a lot of people kind of falling out of love with the idea of life in Japan or kind of going, this is the straw that, that breaks the camel's back in terms of acknowledging how I'm going to be seen or treated or not prioritized if I make my life here long term. Absolutely. Uh, there's a quote from um, Prime Minister Suga uh, earlier today that somebody was taking issue with um, this idea that he's talking about the Olympic athletes coming in and people asking about concerns around that. And his response was, you know, we're getting proof of vaccination, we're taking proper precautions, and we have these regulations in place to ensure that they can come into the country safely. And people are like, well, why does this only apply then to foreign athletes? Why not students, employees, significant others? If there's a safe way of doing it, then that should be applicable to everyone. Or if there isn't a safe way of doing it, then it should stop. Yeah, I mean, I, and I think we also just saw that didn't the Ugandan team, as they came into the country, within the first day of being in the country, uh, tested positive for COVID. One of the, one of the so team members, yeah. So the idea that it's, it, yeah, yeah. Um, the idea that it's, it's more safe, I mean, I think, especially with vaccination. I mean, vaccination in the, in the United States, where I am, of, of all places, I mean, it, it, is, it is very high. It's an issue, um, and I wish uh, we could deal with it. So they keep pushing forward with the Olympics because uh, people claim that it will have a positive economic benefit for the country. But I think we don't believe that. Um, and I think, honestly, if you were to look at it at a, at a different level, you'd have a better economic benefit by letting in students, letting in new foreign employees. Do you think that there's a way that this could actually do long-term economic harm to uh, Japan in the long run by making it so clear where their priorities are? It, se it seems to me, of course, from our perspective, it, it seems to be a damaging of, of the brand of Japan. And yet my assumption is that um, the, the, the pain uh, that so many people are feeling right now not being able to enter the country, um, that, that uh, this unfair quality to this entire thing is unfortunately something that I think very few people in Japan are aware of at all. And very few, few people outside of um, those who are honestly trying to get into the country are aware of either outside of Japan. Um, I wonder if it will really have that big of an effect. However, you're completely right in that obviously the things that seem to be more important for the economy uh, in the long term uh, are these non-flashy things about business happening in the country, about people making the country their home, about people having you know coming to Japan to live and having children in the country. These things matter to Japan, but they're not flashy and they're not something that... that Previously, it would have been Abe, and now it's Suga, for however long he lasts, um, can really, you know, frame on the mantle place, right? Um, so we'll, I mean, we'll, we'll see what happens, but I, I mean, it doesn't feel positive to me, even though I will say that in the, super, the, the Summersonic um, press release, they very specifically say the future um, success of the Olympics. They, uh, they hinge um, everything about their announcement on the idea that it, it's a foregone conclusion the Summer Olympics uh, are going to be great, and they're going to open up the door for all this stuff uh, to happen. So if, if Summer Sonic thinks it's going to happen, I, I have to agree. So if Summer Sonic happening hinges on the Olympics not going horribly wrong, then I guess I am rooting for Uganda.
Hey, thank you very much for listening to this episode 89 of Japan by River Cruise. If you enjoyed it, don't forget we have a new show every Friday. Noah, it was a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, Unseen Japan, we have some really fantastic uh, new articles coming out soon by some uh, new guest writers as well as new staff writers. And we also have a video dropping tomorrow about the Japanese Red Army on our YouTube channel, so check it out. Thank you, and we will see you next week.